Uh, if you are new, and it's great to see new people amongst us each week, then uh, my name's Philip, and I'm one of the, the pastors here. I lead the team, and uh, if you're new, you've picked a good morning to be here because we just started a brand new teaching series. We teach from the Bible here each week, and we're in a brand new series caught in Book of 1 John. Uh, called Loved That We Might Love. 1 John is a letter written in the first century by uh, one of Jesus' disciples. By this time, he's an old man, been around a bit, knows a few things, and he's writing a letter to one of the er- or some of the early churches in the first century uh, to help them. And the kind of the big strap line, if you like, the big message that this guy John wants to communicate to these Christians, these churches that he's writing to, is this. He wants to say, if you receive the love of God, then you can love. That's his big message. If you've received the love of God and you're living in the love of God, you're able to love. You're able to love God. You're able to love what he commands. And you're able to love people, specifically the people in his local church. And Jason uh, kicked us off, I thought, fantastically uh, last week by taking us into the first four verses of of John chapter 1. And as Caroline uh, indicated just now, just holding before us not just the wonder of John's testimony, this guy that got to see Jesus and walk with Jesus, but actually the significance of the testimony that every Christian carries of our own encounter with Jesus, as Caroline was saying, and what leads us into salvation, and exhorting us to continue to bear testimony, to give an account of what Jesus is doing in our lives. So I think it's just not, I think it's a good moment actually just to not just to thank Jason for what he's doing, but also for Patrick and Mark. I want you to know that these three guys in particular, uh, as a new eldership team, Mark and Patrick as as elders and Jason as a a hugely valued part of the team, these guys I want you to know are just pouring themselves out for you at the moment. They really are. Some of it is public scene stuff, like the preaching and the stuff at the front, but a lot of it is, is behind the scenes. It's praying for you. It's meeting with people. It's it's late night evenings meetings with me, early morning meetings with me, talking, praying, deciding, trying to sense from God how we can best shepherd and love and lead you. They really are just doing a fantastic job, and I want to commend them to you. In fact, can we just thank those three guys? One of the other things that Jason talked about last week was the wonder of fellowship. It's the other key word that comes out of those first four verses in chapter one. And he was reminding us that, that the, the privilege of a Christian is not that we've signed up to uh, some religious doctrine, but we've been welcomed into fellowship, into actually participating in, being friends with, enjoying God. And he was holding before us the wonder of fellowship with God. And actually, it's that theme of fellowship that this guy, John, wants to continue to talk about in the next passage. And so if you have your Bibles, and don't worry if you don't, because it's on the screen, uh, We're in verse 5 of chapter 1. Verse 5 of chapter 1, and we're going to read through to chapter 2 and verse 6. Now, John is a good father. He fathers these churches. He's an old man. Man, he's got some scars from living for the gospel, from seeing churches planted and growing and taking them through tough times. And because he's a good father, like every good father, occasionally he brings strong, challenging words. And what you're about to hear are strong, challenging words. Not from some religious guy that wants to beat you over the head, but from a good father who has spent time dwelling with the greatest father of all God. And because he loves the Christians he's writing to, and because God loves you this morning, he's going to bring some strong, challenging words this morning. So I want you just to kind of make a decision in your heart now to to, to, to kind of humble ourselves and to listen to the challenge and indeed to the warning that's going to come through from a good, loving father. Here we go. Come on, you don't come to church just for a cuddle and a cozy chat, do you? You come to be stirred. So here we go. First five, chapter one. 
This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, there's that word again, while we walk in darkness, then we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we haven't sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. My little children, I told you, he's a tender father. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. It means he's taken all the punishment for them. And not for ours only, but the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Challenging words, hey? I think what John is wanting to do for us this morning, what God is doing through John's writing, is to show us what does real fellowship look like. Jason held up the wonder of it last week, and John wants to drill into that and say, what's real, deal, authentic Christianity? Like if ever there was an age where we are crying out for, for things that are authentic and real and true and that we can trust and there's evidence and substance behind the claims, it's 2019, right? And John wants to hold up before us because he loves us, and say, what is real deal authentic Christianity? And if you claim to be a Christian, are you one? So this is a really good morning for us if we'll let God speak to us to see, is there a real deal authentic Christianity if we're claiming to be a Christian? If we're not claiming to be a Christian, I'm just really glad that you're here. Thank you for coming and for looking into these things. And actually, this is a really good morning for you as well because you can look in on this and you can see what is real Christianity. You might have heard all these kinds of things. Probably heard Christians talk about sin quite a lot, just as John does here. But actually, what's the, what's the real deal? You're going to see what real deal Christianity looks like. And what John wants to tell us is that real deal, authentic Christianity and fellowship is about three things. It's about walking in light, confession, and community. If you take away nothing else this morning, take away that, that line that John wants us, as if we were authentic Christians, to walk in light, confession, and community. Now, John likes to go kind of round the houses a little bit in his writing. And normally I like to be quite kind of clear. And I've got my three points. And we're going to go one, two, three. This has been an interesting experience for me because we're going to kind of go around the houses as well. So I'm just about hanging on to my, my three points, walk in light, confession, and community. But I'm going to go around those three things in a rather more roundabout route than, than normal. So if you are a linear, logical person, you are panicking in your seat right now. And if you are a more creative, circular, flexible person, you're thinking, finally, some flexibility to this man's uh, preaching style. Right, walk in the light. What does John mean by walk in the light? 
chapter 1, verse 5, he says, God is light. And in verse 7, he says, walk in the light. Two things. Firstly, uh, Anna, do you have a tissue by any chance? That's not my first point, but do you have a tissue by any chance? So I'm just going to keep on sniffing if, if um, you don't help me out. So thank you very much. A little bit of congregation, participation. Thank you very much. I just know I'm going to sniff, and it's going to really annoy you if I keep doing that. Okay, Seamus, you want to just mute me for a second? Here we go. Back in the game? Good. Seamus will do anything, even sniffling pastors. Right. First thing, God is light. By light, he means that God's character and God's actions can be compared to light. That's the basic analogy that he's using. It's like John saying, there is a brilliant white pureness to God's character and God's actions. I love what the Old Testament prophet uh, Hosea says about God. He says that the God's glory radiates, it's radiance. There is a, a brilliance, a whiteness, a lightness, a purity to the character and actions of God. God is light. And then he says, if you trusted in Jesus' sacrificial death for you, and the language he uses for that is in verse 7, the blood of Jesus, he says, not only are you forgiven and in right standing with a just God, you're also brought into a personal living relationship with a loving God. It's both and. And that's what fellowship is about. So all that is light, in other words, all that is pure and good and beautiful and holy and righteous and wholesome, all of that is contained in God and overflowing from God. And a Christian doesn't just observe that and learn about it. He or she participates in it. Fellowship in the light. The, the Greek, John's writing in Greek, and the word he uses for fellowship literally means participate in. Light in goodness and love and wholeness. You get to interact with, worship and enjoy and make much of and be changed by all that is good and holy and righteous. To walk in the light. Uh, a few years ago, Caroline and I, we, we, we got married and we had our marquee, we had our reception just in a big tent in the field, basically. And it kind of snowed in the week, so it was looking pretty risky, but finally the sun came out and we were just about okay. And uh, through, the, through the, the day, someone said to me, you've got to make sure in the, in the kind of crazy joy of a wedding day, you've got to make sure you take a bit of a time out just to sort of catch yourself. Uh, and in my position, just kind of think, wow, I've got a wonderful wife. And I did that. I just went outside just for a little bit. I said a few seconds, just as the sun was going down in, in this big field, it was getting pretty dark. And of course, the tent by now is like lit up with light. And all that was happening in the tent was good. It was full of joy and friendship and family and love and joy and dancing. And I was stood in the darkness. And of course, my only desire was to get back in the light. I was in darkness thinking, what am I doing out here? I just want to be in light where there is friendship and fun and joy and laughter and celebration and dancing. And that's partly what John is saying. Walk in light. Walk in light. If you'd have seen my dancing, that probably would have been a, a speck of d darkness in the light. But other than that, it was sheer light taking place. And I wanted to get back in. And John is saying, fellowship with God. It's about being in, the, in, in, in a tent that is full of all that is good. Righteousness, holiness, joy, peace, so on and so, 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 on and so forth. But let's just drill into that a bit more. That sounds kind of lovely and ethereal. What are the actual dynamics of walking in the light? Or to use my limited analogy, 
dancing in the tent of light? What does that actually look like for anybody that is genuinely fellowshipping with God? Two things. One, it's about spending time with God. To be an authentic follower of Christ, to fellowship with God, to walk in the light, is about spending time with God. Did you catch at the end of the passage in verse 6 of chapter 2? John talks about abiding in God. And we don't really use the word abiding very much other than a certain Welsh rugby anthem. So it's kind of lost its cultural, cultural currency a little bit. But it's a really beautiful word, abiding. It's the language of, of intimacy. It's the language of enjoyment. It's the language of lingering a little bit longer in the presence of. Abiding. Of course, it's the language of time. You can't abide, you can't linger, you can't enjoy without time given to the person with whom you are spending. So question, which I think God's been saying to us throughout January as a church family, do you, do you spend time with God, you and him, lingering? Is it a big rock, as we said a couple of weeks ago, in your weekly diary? Is it a discipline that results in delight? Because that's what spiritual disciplines are for, right? They're not there that, so that we can feel good if we do them and bad if we don't which sadly has often been the case throughout church history. But church history, over and over again, century after century, believers have found over and over and over again that the spiritual discipline of time with God, lingering in his presence, wondering about his word, asking the Holy Spirit to help us understand it, and then for truth to go from our head into our hearts, that is the way to grow in fellowship with God and enjoy. So do you know what that is? to find your spirit soaring as you worship God, as you begin to sing words of truth? Do you know what it is to find a a cold heart being kindled? And slowly but surely, as you meditate on scripture, as you sing out words of worship, suddenly or slowly, courage begins to come. Faith begins to rise. Humility begins to grow. That's the invitation of walking in the light. Second invitation, and indeed second, if you like, evidence of real deal, authentic Christianity and fellowship is not just spending time with God, but living in obedience to God. Living in obedience to God. Verse 3 of chapter 2. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments which mirrors very much what John himself heard Jesus say all those years ago It's reported in his gospel account in chapter 14, verse 15, when Jesus says, if you love me, you will fulfill your personal potential in life. No. If you love me, Jesus says, you will obey my commands. Listen. If Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that's the center of our faith. Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and he really is the mighty king of the universe, whom even death could not hold. And kings get to say what is right and wrong. Kings get to issue commandments. If death could not hold him and he's ascended to the right hand of the Father in glory and is ruling and reigning, then he gets to say what is right and wrong, good and evil, what is for human flourishing and for the glory of God. But we don't only obey because he's the sovereign king who's in charge. We obey because he's the servant king who died for us. The cross shows us that we have a king who loves us, who served us. We don't only obey because he is the authoritative king, 
though we do, we obey because he loved us and served us. And so therefore we can trust what he says must be for our good if he laid his life down for us. And John is saying, or the super of the Bible is saying, when the gospel has melted your heart, when you can say in all integrity, I am, I am more sinful than I could ever dare admit, and I'm more loved than I could ever, ever dare imagine. When you can say that, it melts your heart. You say, of course, I want to obey the king. He's not just in charge, but he loves me and he's for me. And Jesus had a lot of things to say about how we live once we come to him. If you're not a Christian here this morning, no one is asking anything of you. Because Jesus, first and foremost, asks that you come to him, the king who lays his life down for you. And when you do, it becomes a a natural inclination of these hearts of ours, or at least it starts to become the process that we want to obey him and please him. And he had all kinds of things to say about how we live with our money. The way in which we love and serve those who are in poverty, under oppression. He had things to say about how we obey him with our bodies and the physical purity with which we live. How we serve the church. Jesus had all kinds of commands that he gave. So, how are we doing with these two evidences of authentic, real deal Christianity? There are invitations there to fellowship with time with God and invitations there to to live in obedience to the king who knows what is good. There's also a challenge there. There They are evidences of real deal, authentic Christianity. Is your claim, if you are claiming, is your claim to be in fellowship with God evidenced by time with God? Is your claim to know God evidenced by obedience to God? Let me just push on the second one a bit more. Because John does. Thinking about obedience. Man, if ever there was a time when we are we resist the idea of authority, it's 2019. Partly because we see it wielded really destructively in all kinds of ways. But let's press on this evidence of, of obedience. Where, here's a question for you. Where are you currently, if you're a Christian, where are you currently obeying the commands of Jesus even though it doesn't suit you or it's painful? Because, come on, let's be honest here. This is, this is church. We can be honest. We can all obey Jesus whilst it suits our natural desires and ambitions and it's convenient. But if God is an eternal, unchanging being, which is another key claim of Christianity, he will, through the sweep of human history, he will say things that we don't like. Like, even now, cultures, civilizations, we're disagreeing about all kinds of things, aren't we? And people in Western society would be very offended by the idea of submitting to the authority of God. People in other parts of the world won't be offended by that at all. But they'll be offended by other things. And that's just now. So throughout the sweep of scripture, cultures, civilizations have come and gone and thought different things. So God is always going to say things that human beings don't like. Or that our, our kind of natural proclivities push back against. If God, only, come on, if God only agrees with how you feel and what you want, he's just a God in your image. Be honest, you don't want that, do you? I don't want a God just like me. I want a God who's unchanging and eternal, who's always good and always true. So are there areas in your life 
where you choose to obey Christ and actually it doesn't suit in the moment. It's even painful. That to me is a key evidence of authentic, real deal Christianity. Otherwise, Jesus is just lining up with what you want and what you desire. Now, my guess is, if you're anything like me, maybe you guys are, are, are well ahead when it comes to both these things, time with God, obedience to God, my guess is there are, there are times in all of our lives where, where we're cold towards the idea of time with God, worship of him, abiding in him, the ups and downs of the Christian life. We all have that. I do. And there are times in our life when, we, when we're really struggling with, with, with obedience to the things that Jesus commands. We all have those ups and downs. You just nod in, in, in kind of, affinity with me as I expose myself. Thank you very much. We all have those ups and downs, right? The thing is, John doesn't let us off with just a nod and a wink and a cozy, knowing shrug. Because he loves the people he's writing to. And God loves you. So he's not going to let us off with just, oh well. In fact, John gives three clear, loving warnings specifically about the issue of obedience that we really need to hear Three things he says, or three warnings he gives. They won't appear on the screen, they're just the verses will keep coming up. Warning number one, he says, is don't keep on sinning. Warning number two is admit you do sin. Sorry, Shay, they are coming up, but you're doing a great job. I'm not. Warning number three is don't regard your sin as purely personal. I'm going to look at those three as we head into the home straight. It's number one. This first warning, don't keep on Sinning. First of all, what, what do we mean by sin? Like if you're new to church, you've probably heard Christians wielding the sin word in all kinds of different ways. You may be around church a long time and you've, you've heard sin and seen this word, this concept, wield it, maybe even in painful ways. But God is good. That's so what he has to say is good. And here's what we mean by sin. Here's what the Bible means by sin. Sin is simply ways of thinking and acting that oppose and dishonor God, that probably harm others and ultimately harm ourselves. Whether that is selfishness or gossip or violence, pride or unforgiveness or lust, what nearly always lies behind those destructive, non-honoring, harmful actions often is a belief, a core belief that says, I want that more than I want God. That's right at the heart of sin. Exchanging God for other things. Sometimes obviously destructive things. Sometimes even good things, but we make them destructive things. What the, the sin behind the sin behind the sin often is, ultimately, for a Christian at least, ultimately we're saying, I don't believe that what God says is for my good. So I'm going to stay wallowing in unforgiveness and resentment. I don't believe that when God says, keep your eyes pure, that that is ultimately always going to do me good. So I'm going to expose my eyes to things that aren't that. The Bible's not interested in behavior modification. It gets into our hearts. It gets into really what we're believing. The thing behind the thing behind the thing. Three warnings. Number one, it's going to get more challenging. John says, don't keep sinning. What does he mean by that? Verse six, chapter one. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. And in case we miss the point, he says in verse 4 of chapter 2, whoever says, I know him, I'm a Christian, 
but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. In other words, you can't claim fellowship with God if you don't spend any time with God. You can't claim to follow the king if you're constantly disobeying the king. It's logical if we're objective about it. John says that kind of person is that kind of person is a liar. Fake. That is not authentic Christianity. It's pretend Christianity. And he just calls it out for what it is. Now, I kind of feel like I'm walking a little bit of a theological tightrope at certain moments. We need to be really, really clear. I know politicians always say, let me be clear, and then they get very obtuse, but let me be clear. We need to be really clear here. The Bible is, is really clear. A Christian is brought into fellowship with God simply by responding in faith to what Jesus Christ has done. That is it. A Christian is somebody who says, I, I confess my own darkness. I confess that I, I can't live life to its full purpose and potential without somebody rescuing and saving me. And I trust that Jesus Christ has done that in his death by taking my sin and by rising again to life. He's given me life in its fullness. He does it all, and we just say, I need him. I receive grace and gift. That's it. Please don't hear from me that I'm exhorting us to work our way into the affections of God. We respond to Jesus Christ, who has the full affections of God, and brings us into fellowship with God. The Bible, though, is equally clear that when that has happened, and it might happen in a moment, it might happen this morning. You might say, I I don't know everything, but I know enough. I know that I have my own darkness. I know that I need it forgiving and cleansing. I know that life is not working. There's no sense of peace and full purpose without God. So I confess my sin and I receive all that Jesus has done for me. You become a Christian. And in that moment, you become a new person. The Bible uses the language of being a new creation. It even uses the language of being, like being born all over again. And that can happen in a moment and it might happen for you this morning. Fellowship with God, with all that is light, yours, suddenly, in a moment, through the work of Jesus Christ. Or it might happen over a period of time. Others find they need to keep on exploring, keep on asking, keep on bringing doubts and struggles and questions and challenges. And we're up for both here at King's Church. We're up for both. We're up for the the moment of stepping into the fellowship of God through faith in Jesus Christ, and we're up at helping you with challenges, doubts, your biggest questions. No question is too offensive. No question is too big or too silly. This is a church where you can doubt, struggle, ask, and wrestle, and offend. But our prayer is that over time, as that exploration takes place, that the grace of God begins to seep into your heart and mind. And either in a moment, or because you look back and you say, do you know what? I believe in who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. And either in that moment or over a period of time, you too have become a new creation in Jesus Christ. And the Bible's really clear. Once that has happened, in the moment or over a period of time, there will be evidence of that. There has to be. How can you become a new person and not bear evidence to that? So it's both and. If you claim to be in the light, you'll walk in the light. If you claim to know God, you'll obey the commands of God. And so it's not inappropriate 
what John is doing is pressing on people who might claim to be Christians and actually with an objective, humble assessment of the soul, it turns out that they're not. Now again, I'm walking a theological tightrope here and even an emotional tightrope. Pastor here of mine, Tim Keller, talks about preaching. You need to comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. I don't want to comfort the comfortable and disturb the disturbed. We're talking about over a period of time, not the ups and downs of the, the Christian life and the stumbles and the coldness and the ups and downs and the highs and lows. I'm talking about if over a period of time you do an objective assessment of your life and you conclude there's, there's really no desire for any, number one, time with God. It's, just a, it's basically a coldness towards the things of God. I, I don't have a desire for any real sense of fellowship or worship or, or the word of God or to abide and linger in his presence and if you also conclude that there's really no sense of any obedience to Christ certainly not when it doesn't suit me and actually there's it's kind of a, a persistent unrepentant disobedience over a period of time if, if those two things are in place the Bible would say to you that it's possible that you're not actually a Christian in the first place and, and I'm saying that number one because the Bible says that and number two because I love you there is a, a tent of light, of fellowship, of friendship, of joy, even of dancing. Please don't pretend that you're in the light and actually be standing in the darkness. So John is warning that authentic, real deal Christianity cannot include a long-term coldness and disobedience towards God. At the same time, just in case... Lots of us thinking, phew, this doesn't apply to me. At the same time, John is also warning, just as authentic Christianity has nothing to do with long-term coldness and disobedience, authentic Christianity is also to do with admitting that we do sin and that we do stumble and that we do wander out of the tent sometimes and find ourselves in darkness. It's both and. It's both and. So his second point is, admit you do sin. Verse 8 of chapter 1. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If you're not a Christian and you, you know Christians and they just have a, a holier-than-thou attitude where they just think they're just right all the time and never stumble and never get it wrong, I put it to you, you've not met a real deal Christian. John would have no, he wouldn't recognize that. Chapter 10 of verse 1. Uh, verse, eight of chapter, verse 10 of chapter 1. If we say we have not sin, we make him a liar. First one on chapter two, my little children. John's so kind and affectionate to those that he writes to. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. John's not contradicting himself. He's saying, my heart for you, little children that I weep over and write to and pray for, I love my heart for you, King's Church, is that you would grow in affections for God, that you would long to abide with him, to linger a little longer in fellowship with him. My heart for you is that you would grow in authentic and indeed radical, costly, sacrificial, God-glorifying, he must be amazing, I'm disobedient to him. Obedience. And John knows you will if you are a new creation in Christ. Listen, if you can see any, any semblance of growing affections for time with God, 
If you can see any sense of obedience to God and desire to obey God, that is a sign of authentic, real deal Christianity. Celebrate it. That's the Holy Spirit working in you to do things you couldn't do otherwise. John says, that's, that's what I want for you, more and more of it. And I want you to step into the tent occasionally for a quick dance and then back out into the darkness. I want you to live in there. But, little children, you're still fallible. You're still going to stumble. And God would say, that's okay, because you're united through faith to the one who is infallible and has never stumbled. His name's Jesus, and the writer of Hebrews says about him in chapter 4, verse 15, Jesus was one who had been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet did not sin. So part of authentic, real deal Christianity is that when we do stumble, when we do get it wrong, when we do duck out of the tent into the dark field, we, we hold our hands up and we say so. We confess. It's the age-old Christian practice of confession and repentance. At which point, some of us get a bit twitchy. And we get a bit twitchy for all kinds of reasons. We might have experienced confession and repentance as being a very heavy or even oppressive or manipulative thing to modify people's external behavior, maybe. We might kind of see confession and repentance as a once-only thing that happens at salvation. Ah, confession and repentance, that's what the naughty non-Christians do. Those of us who are Christians, we just continue to live in the grace of God. Ah, John would say authentic, real deal Christianity, part of that and one of the evidences of that is that you live in regular confession and repentance. Not as a means to get on the right side of God or to top up his love for you. That's guaranteed and secure in Jesus Christ. But because we want to walk in the light. We want to dance and eat and celebrate and enjoy friendship and fellowship and all that is good inside the tent. We don't want to be skulking around in the dark. Confession and repentance for the Christian is not about white-knuckle behavior modification. It's about tapping into the joy of being united to Christ again, again and again and again. I'm united to Christ. I, I've, I've, I've got it wrong. I've been meditating on Scripture and enjoying worshiping God. I'm just feeling like, man, I'm just, I'm just harsh towards my wife, just unkind. God, would you forgive me for that? I know the cross covers all things. Can I just receive that afresh? Would you change me, men, and make us more like Jesus-type husbands, not either passive and abdicating or wielding our authority and strength, but lay our lives down. I'll take a bullet for you, servant-hearted, sacrificial, Christ-like husbanding. That's a healthy thing. It's a healthy thing. Do you do it? If you're a real deal Christian, there will be moments, regular moments of confession and repentance. Thirdly, so John's warnings are, don't keep on sinning. If you keep on unrepentant, permanent disobedience and coldness, it might mean you're not even a Christian at all. Secondly, he's saying, please don't pretend that you don't sin. Live in, live in the good of your union with Christ and confess and repent and come into the fullness of who you are in Christ. And thirdly, he says, please don't regard your sin as purely personal. 
Kings Church, can we, pl- can we please recognize the time in which we live? I know I'm throwing out all kind of cultural statements, and I'm sure you can push back on the nuances of some of those. But can we recognize the time in which we live? We have never, I don't think, lived in such an individualistic culture. Right from the moment of the Enlightenment, when we start to say the individual is primary, more and more, that's, that's, the, that's the well that we drink of. And some good things have come from that. You could argue perhaps human rights has come from a, a holding up of the primacy of the individual. But ultimately, human rights only comes really from a Christian ethic that says that every person, man, woman, and child is made in the image of God and therefore worthy of dignity, value, and equality. But along with that, there's been this almost worship of the individual, our rights to happiness, comfort, personal fulfillment, and so on and so forth. And it can seep into the church. that Our relationship with God becomes a vertical thing. And I need to get right with God, maybe. Or I need to enjoy my union with Christ and confess and repent and be changed. But I want you to see what John says. It's subtle. You can miss it. He says in, the beginning of, uh, in this beginning of this passage, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. I'm talking about fellowship with God, light, dark. In, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, then we lie. Fine. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with. And at that point, I'm expecting it to say, we have fellowship with God. Because you're saying, if we, pretend we, if we say we have fellowship with God and we walk in the darkness, then we don't. And if we have fellowship in the light, then we must have fellowship with God. That's what I was expecting John to say. But he doesn't. He says, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. See, sin is not purely personal. It's not purely individual. It's not purely vertical. It has a horizontal effect. It matters in the family of God. And John's saying a decision to walk in the light will mean you can have genuine, authentic, deep, known and loved fellowship and community in the life of the church. A decision to walk in the darkness, however subtle, however hidden, will damage not just your enjoyment of the light with God, it will damage the fellowship with one another. You can't have genuine, authentic fellowship unless we're honest and vulnerable, and that sometimes includes challenging and responding to challenge with confession and repentance. Now, we, I th- we're talking a lot about this language of being known and loved, and I want to just helpfully correct a possible misinterpretation. We're not talking, known loved in the family of God is not about fluffy, I always affirm you, you're amazing, you're wonderful. If only I'd encourage you more, you would reach your personal potential. Now, we want every single person to reach their personal potential in God and be the, 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 the most fantastic Christian you could ever be because of this. But we're not talking about just backslapping. Being known and loved includes knowing someone well enough to challenge them and loving someone enough to actually dare to do so. And some of us don't like that. Because hang on a minute, I thought known and loved was the affirming, cozy, community, seat at the table, yum yum. (laughs) Come on, be honest with each other. Our best growing moments in the life of the local church are when someone knows us well enough to call out our struggles and our weakness and loves us so much that they dare to do so. I defy you not to be brought into more Christ-likeness. If, if someone comes to you having prayed, maybe even fasted, sought God, I, 
I've been praying, I've been fasting and praying for you. I've also just observed this uh, aspect of your life. I want you to know how much I love you, how much God is for you. And for those reasons, I'm concerned for this area in your life. Will you consider it and possibly come into confession and repentance and, and the joy of doing that together. I defy you, if you can accept that, not to grow and to change and to become more like Jesus. But you can't do that unless you are willing to be known and willing to know and willing to take steps towards people as well as to receive steps towards self. My biggest growing moments in this church have come from people, some of whom are sat here, doing just that. And I'm really grateful for it. And you will grow as a Christian. You will grow in Christ-likeness. You will enjoy the light far more. If you find a context, a life group, or even just two or three prayer meet together, where there is an open agreement that we love each other enough to occasionally call out things and encourage the biblical practice of confession and repentance. I need to come into land quickly. But I'm not going to rush it because this, this is, this is imp- important. <laughs> so I've kind of touched on three warnings that John gives. What about long-term, persistent coldness and disobedience? It might mean you're not actually saved. He's also touched upon this issue of, are you a real deal Christian who does walk in regular confession and repentance? And he's also touched on this issue of, do you do that in the context of one anothering, fellowship? Do you know what it is to be admonished in love and to admonish in love? So wherever we touch in on that, and I defy any of us not to touch in somewhere in there, what's the answer? What's the answer? My sermons are very predictable. They always end with one answer. And it's not you and I, ultimately. Jesus Christ. Verse 9, chapter 1. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 1 and chapter 2. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. His name is Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. It means he's taken all of the shame and punishment for it. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Don't you dare, and I say this as lovingly as I can, don't you dare think that your sin is not covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the cross. I've never heard it said explicitly, but I've heard it said implicitly. Well, what are you trying to say? What are you trying to say? That when Jesus Christ on the cross, suffering the agony of the, uh, the physical death that he went through and the far greater, indescribable, unknowable agony of all of the righteous, just anger of, from God onto sin. And that when he said, it is finished, that he didn't include your sin? Who do you think you are? He is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Please don't hide in the darkness. I haven't been doing this job very long, but I've been doing it long enough to know. I've come away from enough conversations where I've basically thought, oh, if only. If only this person had confessed when it was just a bubbling thing. 
when they were just a couple of steps outside the tent, wandering about the darkness. If only they'd said, if only they'd had the security, if only we had a culture in which they could be secure and vulnerable. If only they'd said, I'm struggling, please help, I confess it. Oh, what could have been avoided? Pain that could have been avoided. Because sin has consequences. And my experience is that there's one big thing that stops us from being authentic and vulnerable in the local church, and it's shame and fear. We fear that our confession will result in us being shamed or rejected, either by people or by God. And that sadly does sometimes happen in the local church because we are full of fallible, imperfect people who stumble all the time. So I can't promise you, as Jason rightly said last week, I can't promise you that it'll always go perfectly. People will let you down sometimes. But there is one who will never let you down. If you are not yet a Christian... If you thought you were, but you've realized you're not, and your heart is beating at ten to the dozen. If you are a Christian, but you know that God is right now laying his gentle, fatherly, strong hand on areas of your life, for all of us, the response is exactly the same. Confession and repentance. That's how you step into the light, into the fellowship of God for the first time. Excuse me. And it's how you step back into and walk in the light through confession and repentance. Please don't hide in the darkness anymore. If you continue to do so, it may, it may result in the sovereign revelation that you never actually were saved in the first place and the darkness is yours forever. I do not say that lightly. Also, it may result in not any question around your salvation, but just untold and unnecessary pain for you and others around you. So why not step back into the light? Step back into the tent. There is forgiveness there. There is cleansing there. There is acceptance there. There is joy there. There is dancing and feasting and the person you are supposed to be. What kind of bridegroom would have stayed out in the dark field when his bride was in the tent? What kind of Christian stays out in the darkness when there is joy inside the light? I'm going to keep pushing on this because I love you and I'm for you. I remember years ago when I was a little boy, I was playing football as ever, every day. I thought I was going to be good. And my mum would always say, when you get home, I need the tissues again, sorry. Oh, they're here. Thank you. My mum would always say, when you get home from school, Philip, change your school trousers. Wear a pair of taxi trousers, then you can go out and get as filthy and muddy as you want. Yes, mum. And one day I came home and I was so keen to get out there, so keen to play, so keen to show off my skills. I thought, I've stuffed that. I'll just wear the same old school trousers. Of course, it was absolutely filthy at the end. It was a wet day. Came back in. My trousers are covered in mud. Hole, I think, in them. And in a rare moment of kind of contrition, I thought, oh, dear. I probably should apologize to my mum. She made it very clear I shouldn't do this. And I just thought, I don't really believe your instructions are good. 
So I began to say to my mum, I'm really sorry. I know you said change my trousers, but I haven't. And I've just worn the same school trousers. And now they're really muddy and they've got holes in them. I'm sorry. And my mum said, I'm really pleased that you've apologised to me. It's okay, I'll forgive you. Now, there were some consequences to that. can't remember exactly what, but something was uh, taken away or some kind of discipline that evening. But the story doesn't end there. It doesn't end with forgiveness. The next morning, I go to put on my school clothes. Shirt, jumper, tie. Trousers, should go to school with those on. What do I find? A pair of washed, pressed, clean trousers. My mum was not only going to forgive me, she was going to cleanse me. She wasn't going to forgive me and then send me to school in my filthy trousers full of shame and embarrassment. She washed them, white as snow, but they were black. You know what I mean. <laughs> if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God doesn't say, okay, we're quits, fine, I forgive you. He cleans you. He makes you pure again. He reminds you of your unity to Christ and the purity of Jesus Christ who was tempted in every way. And don't do that thing where you say, well, what about this and what about this and what about that? Every way. And yet he was without sin. And confession and repentance brings you again into the freshness of not just forgiveness but of cleansing. And then you can sing and dance and feast in the tent of light where you always intended to live. I've gone on for longer than I thought I would, but I wanted to keep going. And we're going to just close like this. I want to give you the opportunity to step into the tent, into the light. I want to give you the opportunity to confess your dirty, muddy trousers and to have a brand new pair. So I'm just going to ask Jamie just to help me at, with some, some playing. We're not going to go into a song. We're not going to ask you to come to the front or anything like that. But I'm going to ask you to make some decisions. So all we're going to do in a moment is just close our eyes where we are. I'm just going to let God speak to us if he hasn't already and confirm some things. And then if you want to step back into the tent, either for the first time as a brand new Christian, into the fellowship of God, into light through Jesus Christ, or whether you are a Christian, but you know you need to confess some things and get right with God, or whether you thought you were and you're realizing, I don't think I've ever actually properly confessed and repented and come into the fellowship of God. Whoever you are, I'm just going to ask you, because we're all going to have our eyes shut, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand, not so I can call you out or shame you, but so that you take a physical step of stepping back into the tent through the gateway of confession and repentance. And then I'll just lead you in a short prayer.